Well, good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your holy word, your word written. And we thank you, Lord, for the way in your word you reveal to us the truth of who you are, the truth of your great love for us. And even, Lord, you give us insight into what's going on around us, um, what's going on in our own personal lives, in lives of our families, our communities, and in the world at large. And so we ask, Lord, through this series, and especially through this time this morning, that you would open our eyes once again to see uh, who you are in all your glory, um, to see you in your great love and mercy extended to us, um, and to give you glory and honor, and to put our trust in you, even as we face whatever it is we face on a daily basis. And so we ask this for your glory's sake, and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, so this is the first in a four-part series that I thought of doing on um, Revelation, which is the scariest book of the Bible, right? (laughs) I've bitten off more than I can chew, and I'm trying to condense it to four weeks. And what you'll see is that it's going to be somewhat non-chronological. We're going to look today, we're going to start in chapter one, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit to chapters four and five, and then we'll end up at the end of the book, hopefully, if I have enough time, just to touch on one or two things. And then next week, what we'll do is we'll go back to chapters 2 and 3. We'll look at who the book is actually written to and how that applies to us today. Um, Our third week, we're going to actually cover the most ground in terms of chapters. We're going to go from chapter 6 through to chapter 19. So we'll cover all of the weirdest, wacky stuff in one Sunday, hopefully. And then the final Sunday, we're going to look at the last couple of chapters of Revelation at this great hope that we're looking forward to at the end of human history. So before we dive in today to look at our topic for today about this idea of worship, of um, how Revelation has all of these throne scenes, and so I've titled today's class Around the Throne in Revelation, Unveiling Eternal Reality. So before we look at some passages, especially from chapters 1, 4, and 5 about this, I want to just get into what in the world do we do with this book that is so confusing. Um, what do we do with the book of Revelation? Um, when it, it's hard. It's easy to find, right? It's at the end of your Bible. Um, but we often find throughout popular religion, throughout a lot of the books that are written on it, we find that there's someone always trying to solve the puzzle of Revelation. And I am moving my hands like a Rubik's Cube because they're trying to match it up right, so that all the colors get on one side of the cube. I always hated Rubik's Cubes because I couldn't, I just couldn't do them. And so my grandmother had one, and I just remembered wanting desperately to move all the stickers and take them off <laughs> and put them on the one side. And what I will say is when people, um, even well-meaning scholars who know a lot about the book, try to solve the puzzle and treat Revelation as though it's a puzzle book, it's, um, they do damage to it, just like I would wanted to do damage to that darn Rubik's Cube by taking out the stickers and pasting them back on the other sides. So, so what I will say today is when we approach the book of Revelation, we approach it not as a puzzle book, but we are meant to approach, God wants us to approach Revelation as a picture book. And um, there's one commentator that I appreciate named Vern Poitras. And he says um, that he was telling these pastors, you know, just read it. Don't try to interpret it too much. Just read it in church. 
Um, and he was encouraging the children in the congregation to read Revelation because he felt like they would be able to approach it with less baggage than us grown-ups. And one 12-year-old boy came up to him afterwards and he said, I did read it. I read it. It was amazing. And he said, did you understand it? And he said, yes, Jesus wins. <laughs> and he said, that's right. <laughs> and, um, and the boy went on to say, I read it just like it was a fantasy book, except that I knew it was true. And his pastor and biblical scholar said, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly how we're meant to read Revelation. It is a picture book. It is a book that's composed of symbolic visions that include mythical animals, word pictures, and visionary experiences that give cognitive insight and then also invite an emotional response from us as we're reading it. So when we look at the genre of Revelation, what genre is this? passage of scripture is always a good thing to ask yourself when you're reading scripture. And if you want to know about genres, what are all the different available genres in scripture, you can talk to me later about that. There are many. But Revelation covers multiple genres, and maybe that's why it's hard for us to understand. Um, Revelation is simultaneously prophecy, apocalypse, and it's a letter. It is apocalyptic, epistolic, and prophetic. And when we look at the first couple of verses of the book of Revelation, what you'll see in chapters one, chapter one, verses one through six, is you see that um, John, the author of Revelation, the human author, is saying specifically, this is a prophecy. He says, this is a revelation or an apocalypse. And then he also addresses seven churches, just the way our other letters in the Bible address specific churches. He says, I, John, to you, the seven, and writing. We'll go into those a little bit more. Um, So it's prophetic. Revelation is prophetic in the sense that it is the culmination of the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And even before that, the prophets who didn't write, Elijah, Elisha, those prophets who lived and we hear about in um, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. Um, So it's prophetic in... um, in that sense, in its fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. It's also apocalyptic in the sense that it involves an apocalypse, literally means an unveiling or a revealing, um, a looking into a mystery. And it's epistolic, of course, as a letter. I'm going to go a little bit further into these. Um, We hear in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3a, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Um, this, uh, I've mentioned that this is in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, but John is also writing in the twofold format of early church prophets. As they would meet in the house churches, there would be the sense in which some, some Christians would have an overwhelming sense that God was speaking to the community through them. They would have the sense as if there was direct communication coming to the community from God. And we see that happening, specifically Paul is addressing that in 1 Corinthians 14, when he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation or a prophecy is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So it was very different from what our Sunday morning worship looks like. There were many people preaching going around. Um, 
And so John is writing down directly these oracles that he is receiving from God. So in that sense, it's prophetic. But also we see in the New Testament that prophets were seen as getting visions from the Lord. And in Acts 10, um, 9 through 16, we see Peter, the apostle Peter, gets a vision from the Lord. As it says in verse 10 and 11, Peter fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened. Anybody remember what he saw when he saw this vision from the Lord? He saw a, a tablecloth being lowered with all the foods that good Jews were not allowed to eat. And it was the Lord's way of saying, you can eat this. The law of Moses is, you're released from the law of Moses. You don't, there are no prerequisites to receiving God's grace. And therefore, Gentiles may enter into the promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So oracles and um, visions are both components of prophecy. Um, other things about prophecy that we notice, prophecy is very much forward-looking. If you read the Old Testament prophets, they're often talking about something that will happen in the future. And here, uh, Revelation is prophetic. We often associate this aspect of Revelation, the end times aspect with it, as being part of the apocalyptic nature of it. And that's because of the way we use the, use the word apocalyptic in English and in our time. But it's really a, an aspect of prophecy because if you read those Old Testament prophets, they're always talking about what's going to happen next. They're always prophesying judgment, grace, Mercy extended to the people of God, extended to the nations around the people of God. Well, Revelation, in this aspect of prophecy, this end-time prophecy, Revelation reveals the end of human history. Again, as Poitras says, God rules history. This is a, a summary of all of Revelation. God rules his history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. History is moving painfully and purposefully towards a definite goal, and conclusion and the definite goal and conclusion is good news for us even when it feels hard and difficult it's good news because the victory of the lamb and his church will come there will be a happy ending to this real uh, story of human history this is good about revelation because i am one of those people that likes to um, i actually do this i actually read the end of a novel before it's begun. <laughs> I used to be better about not doing this when I was younger and was reading so voraciously. I could just keep reading whatever I wanted all the time. But then when I became an adult, I had other responsibilities. And I couldn't just read. Um, my sister and I were remembering taking out, we were limited to 12 books a week by m our mother from the library. And we, was, we were so, she said, look, if you read all 12, we'll go back. But I, you cannot take more than 12. So we, we were voracious readers. But as I got to be an adult, I didn't have as much time to read, and I slowed down. And I also found, if I didn't like how it ended, I gave myself permission to not have to read it. And so sometimes when novels would get very suspenseful, I would be that person. And I used to think it was a bad thing, and now I just don't care. I, like, I don't have time for it. <laughs> i got to go to the ending to make sure this is going to be worth my time. Well, Revelation gives us the ending. Even though we don't always get to know the plot in between now and the end of human history, Revelation reveals the end of human history to us. But in the meantime, how do we understand and interpret all the stuff that comes in between? We're going to talk about that in our third week, chapters 6 through 19, all the wacky, weird stuff in Revelation. How do we interpret it? Well, one thing to notice, I've heard this analogy used before about future prophecy. 
future prophecy, there's a, here in Revelation, there is a definite future. The Lamb and his church will win. There will be victory. But it, the, the chronology of it is not clear. It's not necessarily, not necessarily linear. We think in very linear ways, and we expect a linear chronology to Revelation. But that is not the Lord's intention. That is not John's intention. So one way to think about it visually is to think about, and again, the visual of this is terrible. It's much better on that computer, the, um, the mountain range. And this is a good example of a mountain range where there's definitely one of these mountains that's closer than the other to where we're standing when we look at the picture. But darn if I can tell. Can you tell? I can't tell. So it's, um, John gives us these events in that way. They're in the future. We know the last event, which is that there will be a final judgment and Jesus will return and those in the church will be eternally in his presence, worshiping him. But leading up to that, all we know is it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so the specific events, anyone who tells you, well, this is going to happen and then this is going to happen with very precise, um, accurate, what they perceive as accuracy is peeling off the stickers on the Rubik's Cube and putting them on the different face. Okay. So that's prophecy. Any questions about that before we keep going on to apocalypse? Okay, so um, John himself says this is an apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And there is this future aspect to the revelation, um, this revealing. But one of the ways in which John's apocalypse is similar to a whole genre of Jewish apocalypse um, writings, there are several Jewish apocalyptic writings, especially you find them in the Apocrypha, there's some in Daniel in the canonical Bible. If you read Daniel, it gets real weird and wacky. You see a vision of heaven, and in heaven you hear all of this privileged information about what's going on on earth, and the same is true in Revelation. So that's this characteristic of an apocalyptic piece of scripture is that you see into heaven, you see what's happening, and then you see wild and crazy things um, symbolically represented that are happening on earth. And so it's almost like this heavenly interpretation of things that are happening on earth. It is uh, an apocalypse um, reveals a transcendent, remember, a God perspective on this world. Um, and it's through being taken up into heaven, through seeing history from heaven's perspective, and then through also this end times aspect, being transported into the final future of the world. I like to think about it, um, of course, being a theater person, I like to think about it in terms of um, opening, lifting the curtain and looking behind the stage curtain. You know, if you've ever been backstage at a theater production, there's a whole lot more that goes on backstage than what you get to see at the front of the stage if you're in the house. And so that's this idea in Revelation. We are opening the stage door, we're lifting the curtain, and God is giving us a privileged glimpse of what he's doing and why he's doing it. And so that helps make sense of whatever's going on on stage, whatever we see going on here on earth. So this is important pastorally for us because we often are asking that question. How many of us have asked that question in our lives? God, what in the world are you doing? I trust you. You're in charge. But really? This is really strange right now. Why is this happening in my life? Why is this happening in my loved one's life? 
Why is this happening in the world around me? Lord, why are you doing this? So one other aspect of apocalypse before to move on, we move on is that this genre of apocalyptic scripture or extra canonical writings say, who is Lord over the whole world? Again, it roots and grounds us in that question. We can ask, why, Lord, are you doing this? Because we're calling him Lord, and we're trusting that he is Lord and God. And in these um, Jewish apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic writings that have occurred before John wrote, there are also these complex images that speak vividly to the time and the context of those who are first hearing. Um, and in John's, gospel, uh, John's revelation, you see there are these um, images that he intends to contrast with all the images that they were receiving from uh, Rome. If you think about, if you've ever studied any kind of classical history, Rome was uh, the media mogul of the day. Certainly they were the political military power, but they also were producing really great art. And they had no, no TV, of course. They had no um, kind of entertainment, but they were producing, they were producing gladiator events. They were producing theatrical events. They were producing visual art, beautiful sculptures, gorgeous even murals and paintings and things like that. And a lot of them were propaganda, right, that reinforced Rome's power over all of these peoples that they subjugated and took um, control over. And so in the midst of that, in the midst of this earthly power saying, we're going <coughs> to dominate you, we will rock you, essentially, in the first century version of it, the Lord is giving through John's revelation, through this revelation, he is giving alternate images for those first Christians who had to combat these images that they were receiving from Rome, especially when they started to get persecuted by Rome towards the end of the, set of the first century when this book was being written. So um, John and the Lord through John is assuring them, no, God is still Lord and he is bigger, stronger, more powerful and even if you die, it's not the end. God is still victorious, and you will be victorious in him, and you can trust that. Okay. So any questions about that? Yeah, please, Jason. Uh, John, who wrote Revelation? Is it presumably? It's generally thought John the Evangelist did write it, and the, the genre is very different from John's Gospel. We're almost, I think anybody who would say that the letters of First, Second, and Third John are not written by the same John that wrote uh, the gospel are not reading them, really. <laughs> They're so similar in language. and in, um, But this is so very different that a lot of people are skeptical. It's probably written towards the very end, in the 80s or 90s, towards the very end of the first century. But if John really was a young boy, say a teenage boy, when he followed Jesus, then it's entirely possible that he lived to be that old. And we see at the end of John's gospel that there's this competition between John and Peter. If John gets to live and not be martyred, what is that to you, Peter? And so there is, church tradition says that John really did live to be an old, old man and was maybe not martyred. But so tradition says he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And so I really do believe John the Evangelist is the human author of the book of Revelation. It's, but he, yeah. But he did die like, in, the, in the gospel of like John. So he didn't, like he did die before... Christ, right? No, no, John. No, the Apostle John, because remember, Jesus at the cross is giving the care of his mother Mary 
into John's hand. You remember he says to the beloved, John, uh, God, uh, the beloved disciple, who's very likely the author of the Gospel of John, John, he says to him, behold your mother, um, and mother, behold your son. Essentially, John, you've got to take care of my mama because I'm not going to be here. And so church tradition actually has that both John and Mary ended up in Ephesus, which is one of the seven churches that received the book, this book of Revelation that it's written to. So it's very likely him. I account for the stylistic differences really because these are oracles <coughs> and visions from heaven. Of course, his style is going to be different. If he's receiving this direct revelation from God himself, there's going to be, it's going to be, the language is going to be different. Sure, the images are going to be different. The style is going to be different. Yeah, please. Uh, when I was talking about a visual image, what have been yeah. recognized by the people of the first century? Is that, uh, I believe I heard it once, I'm like, preterism or preterist? We're going we're gonna to look into that in just a minute. Yeah. So I was just making sure. Yeah, no, you're, you're getting ahead of me. Yeah, no, we'll go, we'll go there. Thank you. No, this is great. Um, as an epistle, as a letter, John <coughs> says, um, just like in all of our letters in the New Testament, all of our epistles, we have like an email that to and from at the very beginning. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Sounds very familiar. It's similar in some ways. But it's to seven churches that were in Asia Minor. And the intention is the letters, or the number seven is symbolic all throughout John, um, John's revelation, but also throughout um, the first century and in all of the New Testament. It's a symbolic number for perfection. So whenever you see seven, it means the whole thing. So John is aware that he is writing not just to all the churches, these seven churches in Asia Minor, but he's writing to all the Christian churches that exist, um, not just in the first century, but there's this divine intention that that's for the whole Christian church throughout time and space. But it is very specific to their circumstances there at the end of the first century. There's a common call to victory in Jesus Christ, even though, as we'll see next week, um, John breaks it down. There are different... Um, commands in different uh, pastoral situations in each one of the seven churches. Um, so how then do we interpret the gospel, or the revelation of St. John? Well, here you go. Here's your answer right there. So there are four different classical views that a lot of people look at. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but if you ever pick up any kind of book on revelation, ask yourself, where is this person coming from? Um, because there are four different places where people can land and they get stuck in these places. And then they can only, they start moving the stickers because they can only view Revelation from um, these four places, one of these four places. So the Preterists will say all of the things that happen in the book of Revelation happened um, only in early Christian history. Either they were fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem as um, Jesus predicts that in the Gospels or in the fall of Rome. Therefore, they're all past history for us, which doesn't make sense to me because there's some definite end-time stuff going on there. That also, um, there are some problems with it because basically, if it's only relevant to the first century context and not to us today, then why are we reading it? There's a lot of modern scholars who are not necessarily Christians will say this, but some Christians will say it too. The historicists Viewpoint says, well, all of these events were in our past, mm -hmm. events of human history that just extended out further from um, the first century all the way through to today and then beyond to the second coming. So they do extend it out a little bit further. Um, and that seems like a, a winsome argument, 
Um, but if the book is only an inspired forecast of the future of human history from where John stood, then how was it also actually helpful for those first recipients? Uh, one problem with this viewpoint is that those who hold this viewpoint can't seem to agree on what represents what as they try to identify different symbols and say, well, that was this event in human history and that was this event in human history. They never seem to agree on which event was which. And they also only are looking at Western European history. <laughs> so it's very narrow-minded narrow and probably unlikely So as a viewpoint. The futurist viewpoint says that after chapter three, which we'll finish looking at next week, everything describes only events that are in the future from now that have as yet to be fulfilled. The fourth says, well, none of it's related to history. It is related to history in the sense that Revelation provides a spiritual pattern, um, principles that God works through, and so you can see that pattern repeated multiple times throughout human history, but they're not actually tied to any real specific human historical events. So there are merits to each one of these. I would actually say there's a combination if you combine the merits of all of them. If you say, yes, there is a repeated pattern by which God works that has its grounding in what was happening there in the first century, um, but it also especially seems to heighten and increase just before Jesus' return, it is a pattern then that we can see today, even if we can't identify specific symbols from the book as being, oh, this is so-and-so, or so-and-so, as so people are so often quick to say, so-and-so is the Antichrist, right? So this viewpoint says, no, you can't actually do that, but there might be someone who's exercising this principle of antithesis and opposition to God and Jesus Christ and his church. My favorite solution is actually a composite one. It's a classic viewpoint called the parallelist or resemptive viewpoint. And what it says is that Revelation, and especially chapters 6 through 19 that we'll look at in our third week together, they don't tell a continuous sequence of events. Remember, they're non-linear. Rather, instead, they paint a composite picture where each section adds a new facet. Each section paints a fresh color. And the picture is of the whole church era between Christ's first and his second comings. So the visions then are given to strengthen the Christian of every century against the day when his own world seems to go up in flames, right? So I love, this makes the most sense to me, and it, maybe it's because I don't think in a linear way. Um, I love watching my father and my sister paint. They're both oil painters. And this is one of my sister's paintings. Again, it looks beautiful on my computer. It looks terrible up there. Um, it looks like it's black and white up there, but it actually has some beautiful colors <coughs> in it. And when I watch Susanna or my father paint, you don't know what you're looking at. You don't know what you're looking at until they're done. And even then, sometimes you have to take a big step back, especially because Susanna's really an impressionist. So you have to take a step back. This painting is best viewed from 20 feet away. I have it hanging in our front hall. It's best viewed from 20 feet away, and it's actually the road to our grandmother's house. And I could recognize it from anywhere, but only if I'm 10 feet away from it, and not if I saw her doing it when she first started and she works in such a way that she'll do one color all at once and then she'll go back and she'll do another color all at once um, so she does these puts on these layers of paint so when we get to chapters 6 through 19 just remember each little cycle is like a layer of paint 
Another little cycle is like a layer of paint, and they are all working towards a fulfillment, an end conclusion. So now that we have 10 minutes left, <laughs> let's look at a few passage, passages um, for this particular title, um, un Unveiling Eternal Reality, that look at this apocalyptic nature of this book, that unveil, lift the curtain on what's really going on throughout all eternity, even while human history is playing out on the front stage. So what is going on right now in heaven, and what will come? Well, first, um, I'll go back to these and explain them, but... Um, if not today, in another week. Let's look first at um, Revelation 1, 12 through 20. Um, can anybody actually see this and want to be able to read verses 12 through 16? Anybody who's closer? No pressure. I'll read it if no one else wants to. Yeah, go for it, Heather. 12 through 16. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man... Clothed with, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Can everybody hear her? Can we go on? Do you want to keep going on? Is that okay, Heather? Do you want to go on and go through verse 20? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you. So here we see um, the Lord Jesus Christ depicted with such beautiful imagery. Um, here we find a composite list. It's a composite image of symbolic attributes. One commentator says, imagine that you're writing a love letter to your wife and you say, your hair is like sunshine and your your eyes are like, I don't know, I'm not very poetic. So your eyes are like pools of light. Pools of light. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. But if we try to make, if we try to draw that and, and, and imagine it literally, we'd have trouble doing so. But the beauty of each attribute is meant to call out, well, she has sunny, bright hair. It's just the color of her hair. Or her eyes are deep, and there's something going on in there. But you cannot make it literal. You cannot list those attributes and come up with a composite picture very easily. What they're meant to be is symbolic. So what we see here with Jesus Christ is a little creepy, if you put it all together, honestly. Jesus' hair is white. He's wise. He's august. He is all-knowledgeable. He is um, the Ancient of Days. He was the Word who was in the beginning um, when all was created. His eyes are like flames of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. These are images of power. No one wears a long linen robe and a golden sash around his chest except for a king. He is depicted as a victorious, powerful one here. 
which is so important. If you think about 1 Corinthians and the struggle that those early Christians would have had in saying, well, I follow a crucified Lord. I follow one who died in the most shameful way possible here in the first century, according to the Romans. Um, No, this is a symbol. These are signs of Jesus' victory, even in the midst of his church, while his church is being persecuted. His church is going to be um, beaten, robbed, um, killed even because they follow him. And the Lord is preparing them for this through this vision that he's giving to John. So Jesus is not only all strong, all powerful, the one who is victorious, but he's also there. He's there in the midst of the churches. So these lampstands are um, symbolic of those seven churches and indeed of the whole church, all the churches around the Mediterranean basis. Christ is in the midst of his churches. He sees what they're facing, for better or for worse. For those who are in suffering and persecution, his presence is a comfort. For those who have compromised with the world, his presence is also a caution. Christ is speaking to his church. Christ is staying with his church. Christ is searching through his his church. And Christ is strengthening his church. So we see here a picture of eminence and transcendence, which are big theological words for God's <laughs> farness. If you remember, if you, were in, if you watched Sesame Street when I did, near far. Learning about near and far is always the only way I remember transcendence and eminence. Transcendence is God's farness, his holiness, his majesty, his identity as being God, you know, with all capital letters. He is all-powerful. But then also God's nearness to us. Even though he is so big and so great, he knows exactly what's going on in our lives. He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts, in our thoughts. Um, And in his nearness, he has not judged us, but he has extended to us mercy and grace. Um, So God's farness and his nearness in Christ, this picture of Jesus Christ, we see that Christ is with us. He's walking in the midst of his church. And Christ is for us, even in the ways in which we have fallen short as individuals or as a community, as his church. Christ is still for us. His blood covers us. And we are forgiven and free in him. So it's a composite image that's meant to encourage the churches. This is what's really going on even though they feel like the world is coming to an end. Okay, let's look. Does someone want to real quick read Revelation uh, 1 through 6? It might be you again, Heather. You can see, right? Do you want to? Oh, sorry. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Go for it. Yeah, it is great. If you can see it. Uh, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I have heard speaking to me like the trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cardinalian. Cardinalian, yeah. And uh, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings of uh, peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Thank you. You got it. Good job. This is um, this is an example of theophany, an appearance of God, the very presence of God. And yet this is the, the bedrock of the universe. This is what actually exists 
in the place where God is worshipped eternal, worshipped eternally. There is a throne where God is seated. And if you think about the co- the Ark of the Covenant and the building of the tabernacle and the temple, it's meant to mimic this eternal spiritual reality. We see it also present in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. Um, this vision is in concert with what we see in those other places. God's throne speaks of his sovereignty. As one commentator, Richard Bauckham, says, this vision establishes it as the true reality, which in the end must also prevail on earth. No matter what is happening on earth, God is seated on his throne, despite all appearances to the contrary. In our life, we might say, where are you? In our world, we might say, what are you doing, God? But we can trust that what is true in heaven, that all are worshiping him, must become true on earth. Um, This is one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we can trust him. So here, just to break it down, God's throne speaks to us, speaks to us of God's majesty, the security that we have in him, eternity, personality, authority, and purity. There's majesty there, the colors, um, the jasper and carnelian, the crystal sea. um, These speak of the awe of theophany in God's presence, It's like you can't quite see the person sitting on the throne, just like you can't stare directly at the sun, can you? There's so much beauty being thrown off, so much majesty in God's presence, and that speaks, too, of his holiness. Um, We've already said God is um, on this secure throne. It's permanent. He is in control. The fact that there's actually a person who sits on the throne speaks, too, not of this um, abstract person who doesn't care about anybody who's God, but someone who is a person as well. God is a person. There is um, someone who is actually sitting on the throne. His um, throne speaks to us of authority. His sovereignty shows, even as there are uh, 24 thrones that are probably angelic representatives of the church on earth, we see this political imagery. Um, God is there ruling over all the rulers, even. Um, And the rulers even worship God. There's this act of obedience where they um, bow down and they worship him. They cast their crowns before him. And that's what we see in the rest of this passage. You can read it while I keep talking. We won't have time to read it out loud. But there is um, this sense of purity. There are flashbacks to the giving of the law. And the four creatures around the throne bespeak of the fact that all creation worships the creator eternally. Creatures from all of the cosmos are represented there. Um, Here we see what will happen at the end of all creation. All of creation, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. All creation will worship the creator eternally. And if we go, as we go throughout Revelation, what you'll see is that God's victory throughout every stage or every cycle of its representation in chapters 7 through 19 is accompanied by a worship scene in heaven. All are praising him. One last real quick thing. As we go to the next chapter, we see, too, still in this throne room scene, there's a seal that's brought forth, and there's this lament and despair. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one is found worthy. And John is weeping. No one is found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders said to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There we see that Jesus Christ, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, 
Through him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Um, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, as Paul says in Colossians. And he comes forward, and he is the one who is worthy to break open the scroll, the only human being worthy to look into what is going on. And what we see here is this paradox. At the very heart of our faith, at the very heart of the universe, is the true truth, the real reality, and that is that the lion, the victorious one, the conquering one, the strong one, the mighty one, is also represented as a lamb that was slain. One commentator said, um, it's only the kingdom of heaven um, that would dare to use as its symbol of might, not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless slain, a helpless lamb, and at that a slain lamb who is now alive. Jesus Christ, right here we see the cross is at the very center of all of what's going on in heaven. He is worshipped um, because of this paradox, because of his willingness to give up his right as the Son of God, to come to earth um, and to rescue us from sin and death through his own blood. So that's the real eternal reality around the throne to hold in our hands even when things are difficult on earth. So I'm going to um, close. I'm way past time. I'm going to close by praying a hymn um, that's actually a um, gorgeous hymn about, um, about the future and the, and the reality of the present in light of the future. So let's pray. Come and see the shining hope that Christ's apostle saw. On the earth, confusion, but in heaven, an open door where the living creatures praise the Lamb forevermore. Love has the victory forever. Amen, he comes to bring his own reward. Amen, praise God for justice now restored. Kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of the Lord. Love has the victory forever. Indeed, we thank you, Lord, that you were the one who died, um, that we might have life. Our victory is in you, despite all appearances, um, today and throughout all eternity. And for this we give you thanks. Amen. Amen.